Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. I'm Kareem Shaheen and I'm your host for today. This is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. My guest today is Nicholas Danforth. Nicholas is the author of The Remaking of Republican Turkey, Memory and Modernity Since the Fall of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and he's a non-resident fellow at the Hellenic Foundation for European Foreign Policy. Uh, Nick completed his PhD in history at Georgetown University and has written widely about the Middle East and US foreign policy publications including The Atlantic, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, New York Times, and The Washington Post. And Nick has been a regular contributor for New Lines, and he's written uh, often and uh, ably about Turkey uh, and Turkish history. And he joins us today to discuss his recent piece on the elections in Turkey and to talk about the, the events surrounding the vote and uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan's victory in the recent elections. Nick, welcome to The Lead. Thanks so much. Wonderful to be on here. Nick, I wanted to start by reading a, a short passage from your essay, which you know had the magnificent title, A Fait Accompli. Which Alan Makovsky um, deserves credit for. I was grateful that so many people praised that on the internet, and I, he, he's the one who came up with that, so I have to take this opportunity to say that. Well, it's absolutely spot on. So the passage reads, For scholars and journalists who watched Erdogan consolidate his power, this may finally be the moment to concede that he was always more sophisticated in his use of history than we gave him credit for. Where observers contrasted neo-Ottomanism with Kemalism, 1453 with, with 1923, 1453, of course, is the date of the conquest of Constantinople by the Ottomans, and Mustafa Kemal Atatürk with Fatah Sultan Mehmet II, Erdogan understood that many voters wanted all of it and gave it to them. Where observers focused on the divide between religion and nationalism, Erdogan grasped how effectively they could be wielded together. And he proceeded to do so, fusing these overlapping traditions together, through a series of real and imagined battles against such common enemies as Western imperialism, Greeks, and left-wing Kurds. The result is a potent ideological current that will continue to bedevil Turkey's democratic aspirations and relations with the West long after Erdogan exits the scene. So I wanted to start here, Nick, and, and to ask you, why did you decide to write a piece about the Turkish elections vis-a-vis -vis the conquest of Constantinople in 1453? Well, the answer, I mean, you asked me to. <laughs> fair uh, enough, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, no, this is, it really is why I was delighted for the opportunity. But yeah, this is something I've been thinking about one way or another since I started my PhD dissertation way too long ago, back in 2010, and have watched Erdogan's rhetoric, the relationship between religion and nationalism change, you know, successively in that period, really never for the better. And then seeing how you know, Erdogan really, in some ways, through this election, showed how effectively, how potently, how dangerously he could wield them. And then in a moment where everyone was talking about his victory in terms of a victory for nationalism, you know, I, I was grateful for the opportunity to show or to talk a little bit more about what that nationalism was, how it had come together and what it meant. Because as I said in the article, you know, I think for a lot of reasons that we can go into, it was a little, it was harder to notice as it was happening than maybe it should have been. Uh, so talk a little bit about the outcome of the election. You know, what happened there, obviously it was a competition between Erdogan and, and his nationalist allies and the relatively united opposition that included secularists, nationalists, you know, some, some Kurds as well. Can you talk a little bit about what actually transpired last weekend and, and what it means for Turkey in the short to medium term? Well, this gets to something that should say right from the outset that several people mentioned in responding to the article online, and I actually thought this was a, 
very fair criticism and gets to the heart of the challenge of understanding Erdogan's success at the moment, which is that you know, he does have real popular support. He's also running a very authoritarian rigged system. And so in analyzing the election results, it's important to both keep in mind what the real ideological, political, demographic trends are that explain his victory as we would for, you know, I'm trying to make sense of a electoral outcome in any democracy, you know, but also do that in a way that makes it very clear that this wasn't, you know, some kind of democratic assessment of the will of the people. This was happening under a very controlled, unfair system in which the media was heavily dominated by Erdogan. Opposition journalists were in jail. The leader of one of the main opposition parties has been in jail for the better part of a decade now. And so, you know, in part because I was writing about ideology, because I was writing about Erdogan's rhetoric, I was looking at what the roots of his real popular support were. But in talking about that, I do just want to make it very clear that I'm not in any way downplaying the fact that there was a lot more going on in this election than just who, you know, who people really wanted to vote for. With that said, and I think this gets to the argument behind the piece, I mean, what Erdogan, the advantage that he's always had in carving out this religious nationalist position so effectively is that it's left the opposition very, very divided. Because of course, while Erdogan has the religious nationalist vote, on the other side, amongst the people who dislike him, are a lot of Kurdish voters, Kurdish nationalists, or people who simply believe in a version of Kurdish rights that's incompatible with traditional Turkish nationalism. But then a lot of secular nationalists who are very much opposed to Erdogan, you know, in part for a number of reasons, but on the religion-secularism divide, but also have deep concerns, deep hostility towards the Kurdish movement because of their own Turkish nationalism. And that's in part, you know, this is, Turkey has a long history, the origins of Turkish nationalism in the Republic under Mustafa Kemal Ataturk were Ataturk's version of secular nationalism. And so looking at Turkish history over the past, you know, a couple decades, that was very much on the forefront of people's minds, this unique, very secular version of nationalism in Turkey, which is why it was easy to see at first people like Erdogan as not being nationalist because of their religion, because of the way their religious vision for the country, their particular take on Ottoman history clashed with secular nationalism. There was this tendency to divide Turkey between you know, Islamists and nationalists, where the nationalists were the secularists, and what you know, and this was, um, and, and know, also, sorry. and also, the, 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 sorry, and, and also, there seemed to be obviously, given you know, Kemal Ataturk's you know hostility towards religion, at least publicly, there was a sense that that you couldn't sort of espouse your faith while also being you know, in a true sense, a Turkish nationalist, right? Right, and there was always. You know, this is where it, it always gets difficult for historians to try to say anything clear and coherent, particularly on a podcast like this. You know, and obviously there was some truth to that, and there was some sense in which it was an oversimplification. And Erdogan has done a very good job at playing on both a real and imagined sense of victimization amongst conservative religious people in Turkey, very much emphasizing the idea that they never did have a role in Turkey, that Mustafa Kemal Ataturk and his version of Turkish nationalism were, were hostile to the religious, despised traditional pious Anatolian Turks. 
And again, that's not crazy. That's not coming out of nowhere. But, and this was something that I didn't really get into in the piece, you know, it wasn't, there was always more room for those people in Turkish national identity than uh, the Erdogan version gives credit for. And that, you know, Erdogan was not, Erdogan has by all means been the most effective at fusing religion and nationalism. He's really made these resonate. But even going back under Ataturk, there was an undeniable subtext of religion in a lot of the, you know, everyday mainstream Turkish nationalism. And during the passage of time, you know, both under democratic governments that got elected in the 1950s, say, but also when the military took over in 1980, a lot of Turkish political movements have gradually upped the amount of religiosity that's been part of Turkish nationalism. So Erdogan does, in that sense, have a lot to build on in the sense of victimization that he's playing on, the sense of religious Turks having been excluded from mainstream nationalism, has gotten, you know, said it's always a little exaggerated, but it's gotten less and less so, um, or sorry, more and more so over time. Uh, how, so how did we get to here? Because, you know, I mean, when Erdogan was starting out, you know, there were all these overtures to the Kurds, you know, there was there were these peace talks with the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, and and there seemed to be genuine hope that that this particular issue was going to be resolved under his leadership but but this you know there seemed to be this pivot in the mid 2010s where he threw his lot in with the with the nationalists and, uh, and he didn't look back you know what happened to spur that particular movement right and so the idea that erdogan was an anti-nationalist you know it wasn't as i say in the article wasn't crazy there were particularly when he came to power a number of ways in which he very much did define himself against a lot of aspects of Turkish nationalism, specifically on the Kurdish issue and you know and also on the EU. It's easy to forget how much how much opposition there was to the EU from you know conservative nationalist parties, also from very left-wing nationalist parties when Erdogan came to power and that both as a result of his attempt to make peace with with the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers Party, and his efforts to bring Turkey into the EU, he got he was widely attacked from other sides of the Turkish political spectrum and accused of being, you know, often sycophantically pro-American of being a secret American agent in Turkey. In that you know, it's interesting and at that point there were people who really did see his religiosity as being what made him anti-nationalist. And there was also a much more liberal, optimistic version of kind of post-nationalist rhetoric that, you know, Erdogan personally didn't really tap into, but certainly people around him, you know, most famously Ahmet Davutoglu, really did play up. And it was this idea of the Ottoman Empire as a pre-modern version of post-nationalism, something that transcended the kind of narrow nationalist confines of the Turkish Republic that brought together people from different religions, from different nationalities, and that could serve as a template, not only for uniting Turks and Kurds within Turkey, but for uniting Turkey with its neighbors, uh, countries like Greece, the Arab world, countries that had a very tense relationship with modern Turkey. Uh, yeah, and so, you know, again, I think Erdogan, he came into power because of the religion secularism thing, very much opposed to the Turkish military. He saw the conflict between the Turkish military and the Kurds as something that was a result of you know, the military's missteps, the military's hyper-nationalist approach 
to dealing with the Kurds. He thought he could carve out a different relationship with them. He used religious rhetoric to do it. You know, one of the speeches that really resonated with people, he talked about what a tragedy it was that Turkish and Kurdish mothers were both reading the same prayers, you know, obviously Islamic prayers, over the bodies of their fallen sons. This was the context in which he tried to, he had a Kurdish opening in 2008, 2009, and then in 2012 started actual negotiations with, secret negotiations with the PKK itself. And in both cases, he faced a very strong backlash. You know, I say in the article, his current ally in the Nationalist Action Party, Devlet Bacheli, when someone in Erdogan's government referred to a Kurdish town by its Kurdish name rather than its uh, Turkish name, you know, said, accused Erdogan of preparing as a next step for renaming Istanbul Constantinople. This was the kind of backlash he was getting. There was also deep concern in the Turkish military, especially as the formal peace process with the PKK advanced. There were fears that because of the peace process, Erdogan was not taking military measures against the PKK, was letting them reinforce their positions in the Southeast, and this was endangering Turkish national security. And Erdogan so, wasn't. So was it? Was it? Oh, go sorry. So, so, no, sorry. So, so was it then like a political calculation? I mean, did he just determine? I mean, it, you've just outlined, you know, a lot of the backlash that that he he went through, you know, while espousing that that sort of vision of Turkey. Did he? Did he then? I mean, was the pivot a result of just simple political calculation? He wasn't getting enough votes out of it, or you know, was there was there some other impetus behind it? I mean, votes were certainly a big factor. I think in the 2015 elections, he realized, well, even back in 2008, 2009, but especially in 2015, he realized his outreach to the Kurds was costing him nationalist votes. A lot of his voters were defecting to the Nationalist Action Party, and it wasn't getting him anything in return. The efforts, a lot of Kurdish voters credited the PKK-aligned Kurdish party for the improvement in ties with the government. And so it was actually his opponents who were gaining votes as a result of the peace process. When you combine that, I do, I haven't seen any concrete evidence of this, but I think when you have a coup in 2016 and, you know, ultimately there are fractures within the military, some join the coup plotters, some join the, you know, some stay loyal to the government and to Erdogan. You know, I think that makes him think a lot more about the loyalty of the military and probably makes him glad that he didn't continue to alienate the military through his outreach to the Kurdish movement. And I think he also, you know, to be fair, realizes that the PKK were difficult, you know, were difficult partners. They weren't giving him what he wanted, setting aside the question of whether what he wanted was fair or not. You know, there was actually, you know, there was a sense in which I think to make the peace process work, he would have had to share some degree of power with them, given them some regional autonomy in the Southeast they were probably demanding they were demanding considerable concessions erdogan was not willing to give them those concessions and as he became more powerful as he took on a more prominent role in the state as his ties with the turkish military improved as he consolidated his relationship with right wing allies he was less and less inclined to be sympathetic to their demands you know i think in the past he saw their opposition to the Turkish state as being purely a product of the military having mistreated them. Suddenly, when he was in the position of power and they were wanting concessions from the Turkish state and he was the Turkish state, he was a lot less willing to give those. You know, so I think he probably, there were good political, there were electoral reasons 
there were deeper political reasons in terms of his relationship with the military that made him take this shift. But also, I think he probably thought he'd genuinely been naive in thinking he could reach a deal with, with the Kurdish nationalist movement. Interesting. I, I, I want to get back to the historical parallels in a sec, but, but before we do that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your first impressions of the, of the cabinet that, that was yeah. announced over the weekend during, during his inauguration. Obviously, you know, we've got some you know, familiar names over there, Mehmet Chimshek, who used to be the finance minister, I believe, and he left because of the, you know, the, the unorthodox economic policies of, of Erdogan and his government. Uh, that appear to be, uh, you know, uh, perhaps somewhat shifting, you know, in, in the hopes of rescuing the economy somewhat. We've also seen someone like Hakan Fidan, you know, who was, who was the, uh, the head of the intelligence service, become the foreign minister. Uh, Ibrahim Kalin, who a lot of journalists covering Turkey would be familiar with because he was, he was the person sort of giving a lot of briefings to the foreign press. Right. He's now the intelligence, uh, the intelligence agency chief. I was wondering if you could, if you could, you know, talk a little bit about these appointments and, and your first impressions of them and any other significant appointments that you feel are worth highlighting. Yeah, very eager to talk about the appointments. It's certainly interesting to try to read them from the perspective of what they say about how Erdogan may be planning his policy in the next term. I do think it's worth being clear from the very outset, you know, these are Erdogan's appointments. These people were put in power because Erdogan wanted them to be there. If Erdogan doesn't want them to be there, he will remove them. There's no, you know, it should be very clear who's in charge. And and Erdogan's going to be the one who's setting policy. And that, you know, so I, you know, met Met Shimshek, of course, people are, people who are hoping for more economic, more orthodox economic policy were very excited about him being brought in, you know, certainly better than the alternative, but there's the remain serious fears about how much leeway Erdogan is going to give him. And I guess that gets to my broader take on the new cabinet. It does seem like, look, Erdogan won. He seems to be confident in his victory. He seems to be looking towards, you know, actually running the country. And he's put in place very competent people, skilled people, people he presumably trusts. He's gotten rid of people that like, Akar, the former minister of defense, Alex Suleiman Soylu, the former minister of the interior, who, you know, correctly or not, had been talked about as potential rivals or successors to Erdogan. Uh, so he's, you know, he's running the show and he's looking to run the show smoothly and effectively going forward. And he's put in place names that presumably will facilitate that process. But it's still going to be his process. And I think it's still however optimistic we might try to be now about the fact he's put, you know, slightly more moderate technocratic people in place. It's worth keeping in mind that, you know, A, he can remove these people anytime. B, you know, yes, he's in a moment of post-election confidence. He's looking forward. He's trying to put his plans in place. But when things go wrong, as soon as they, I mean, inevitably they will go wrong, he's likely to default to the you know approaches he's taken consistently over the better part of the last decade which is authoritarianism at home and confrontation abroad and so is however you know again moderate competent people certainly better than the alternative but i don't think we should see these appointments as evidence that you know we're dealing with a new erdogan and uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, about hakan fidan specifically because i mean you know a lot of people know his name, but but they're not super familiar with his legacy. I mean, he was, you know, one of the architects of of Turkey's Syria policy, both you know the its 
you know, participation in, in supporting rebels and things like that. In addition to the rapprochement with the with the Syrian regime that has been taking place over the past few years, with the uh, with the Gulf countries, you know, he's frequently traveling around the region, meeting meeting with with individuals. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about him and about you know what he brings to the table. No, and that's a good point. I mean, as you say, the people have been trying to parse what kinds of policies, specifically in relation to Syria bringing in Hakan Fadan might indicate, you know, but as you say, part of what, part of his legacy, part of what makes him good at his job is that as Turkish policy on Syria has changed, he's been the point man for carrying it out. If the goal was to overthrow Assad, you know, he was there for Erdogan. If the goal was to pursue rapprochement with Assad, he was also the one who could do that. So in that sense, I mean, I don't, People say this was the switch to a more more high profile public position in the in the foreign ministry was something he'd been interested in. You know, people were joking about you know when he took this role. There were a lot of folks in Turkey who hadn't actually heard his voice before. I mean, he's very much been someone <laughs> that's true, well known, <laughs> yeah. but but in the shadows, his public persona was not a big part of of who he was. So it is going to be interesting to see that change. But he's clearly, for all the all the concerns that were raised, you know accusations, suspicions, what have you, about his his response to the coup attempt. He's clearly someone by now who's earned Erdogan's trust and clearly someone who's, you know, who's known for being able to do his job well. I don't think anyone is going to be mourning the, the loss of Chavusholu. You know, someone who perhaps, and this is where, I guess maybe this is the way I will be optimistic when it comes to someone like Hakan Fidan being appointed, someone like Ibrahim Kalan as a figures like that, as opposed to Mevlut Cavusoglu, the former foreign minister, you know, these are people who probably have a little more room to be competently and quietly open and candid dealing with their foreign counterparts behind the scenes. There was a little bit of a sense of Cavusoglu that, you know, he was always kind of performing. He was always playing his role. He always had to be the you know, strong confrontational foreign minister who was trying to show his loyalty to Erdogan. You know, again, no question, the new people put in place are going to be loyal to Erdogan, are going to be eager to demonstrate that. But because they have his trust, because of their relationships with other figures, they probably have a little more leeway to kind of do their jobs effectively behind the scenes. Okay, I want to pivot to asking about the opposition for for a minute. You know, I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that you know an opposition that has lost elections really since 2001, you know, continues to have the same leadership in place. You know, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu has been you know the leader of the Republican People's Party for for quite a long time now, and and you know they've they've lost all the recent presidential elections against Erdogan. They've had some inroads in both mayoral and parliamentary elections. But but they still can't you know muster enough votes to actually govern, and you know and there obviously are always hopes ahead of every Turkish election, saying you know maybe perhaps this is the time where you know Erdogan might be unseated or might be put in his place. But you know the the result is always you know underperforming. Keeping in mind obviously all the points you raised about the fact that this is truly an unfair competition because because of the government's control over you know, almost all the levers of power, both in the media and in the judiciary and the, you know, in parliament and, and all of these places. But, you know, what is what is really the opposition's path forward here? You know, they, they seem to have tried everything. You know, in the first round, they tried, you know, presenting a unified front that included, uh, you know, nationalists, included Kurds, included secularists, you know, religious figures as well. 
the in the second round they pivoted towards a more sort of you know uh, almost stereotypically right-wing right. or nationalist approach you know speaking about sending all the Syrians back to their home country and and that didn't work either so what is the path forward for them you know what ought they be doing in the next few months you know to prepare for mayoral elections to prepare for you know future presidential parliamentary elections Right. And to give a brief trajectory of how this went, there was a long, long period before the election where there was a debate over who the opposition candidate was going to be. A lot of people were very much hoping for Istanbul Mayor Ekrem Imamoglu uh, as head of the party. Kamal Kalistarolu was you know, wanted to put himself in the position. There were deep concerns that he wasn't going to be a competitive candidate. He wasn't going to be charismatic enough. Despite considerable opposition internally, he, you know, put himself forward, forced himself forward as the candidate. At that point, a couple months before the election, everyone said, look, we got to win this one. If he's going to be the candidate, we're going to make the most of it. And we're going to do our damnedest to make sure we win. That really for an opposition that's been criticized for its lack of unity in the past, you know, the fact they got nationalist dissenters within the JHP, Kurds, all to come together behind this candidate was very impressive. The fact is when he lost and when he didn't seem to deal with his loss in a uh, way that showed a great deal of humility or contrition, and didn't seem to give any indication that he was willing to step down from the head of the party, it created you know, a roiling backlash, a lot of people saying, I told you so, who hadn't wanted him there in the beginning. And that's what the opposition is still going through now. And I do, you know, as far as what the best electoral strategy for the opposition would be, it's clearly going to be a challenge. As you said, they tried a much more kind of liberal, broad brush, you know, love-focused approach to taking on, you know, being the anti-Erdogan. When that didn't work, they doubled down on a much uglier, you know, nationalistic, anti-refugee tone. That didn't work. You know, it got them a few extra votes, but it didn't work either. And so in terms of what their way forward is ideologically, that's going to be an enormously difficult challenge regardless, but trying to negotiate that with a, you know, within a major opposition party that doesn't have internal democracy in which the leader, you know, isn't willing to step down after, you know, and again, whatever the context was, however much, you know, the playing field was tilted against him, as you said, I mean, he's lost a lot of elections by now. And if he doesn't step down and doesn't create space within the the party for people to really debate what the best way forward is, you know, that's going to make it enormous, enormously difficult. Do, do you think the West has played a role in, in creating this juggernaut, you know, Erdogan's juggernaut and, you know, and, and also to a certain extent, the, the ineffectual opposition that, uh, you know, the, the West often invests, particularly Western media often invests, you know, a lot of. Uh, hopes in in the opposition because they're seen as, as sort of the more democratic of the of the two choices, but do do you think the West has has created you know or has contributed to creating this you know Erdogan machine that 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 has sort of uh, transcended Turkish politics in a sense to to dominate the country in a in a very real way uh, and to you know go from the initial vision of what Turkey was you know as this bridge between East and West and, and an example of a Muslim democracy and where Islamic democracy can coexist. You know, and this was this was the view up until, you know, 2011, 2012, when, when the Arab Spring was starting uh, to what it is now, you know, a, an authoritarian, illiberal sort of democracy that 
you know, instead of having zero problems with neighbors, has problems with all of its neighbors. Look, I think there's certainly plenty of room for self-criticism in terms of the way a number of people in the West got the trajectory of Turkish politics wrong. I'd be happy to say, you know, I for one was too optimistic, not necessarily about Erdogan, but about the ability of the Turkish electoral system, other Turkish institutions to contain Erdogan. You know, I, I genuinely believed going back to 2008, you know, not that he was an angel, not that he wasn't an aspiring authoritarian, but that at a certain point, people, you know, ordinary voters would recognize that he was an aspiring authoritarian and, and vote him out as a result. And clearly that was, clearly that was false, you know, and there again, plenty of other optimism about Erdogan on a number of other fronts. And you saw in this article I wrote, I get it this a little bit. My own frustration is the way academics played into this, the way a lot of the historiography about Turkey that was written in the 2000s played into Erdogan's narrative about the timeless oppression of pious Anatolian Muslims in Turkey under the Kemalist regime, built up this myth of Ottoman tolerance as this liberal alternative to traditional Kemalist nationalism. You know, within the Turkish political discourse, there's been a lot of very harsh, you know, as an outsider, I would say sometimes unfair condemnation of liberals who were initially optimistic about Erdogan. In striking contrast to that, I think when it comes to Western academia and a lot of the enthusiasm that Western academics had in the way they framed Erdogan's rise, there, there still hasn't been a lot of self-criticism about that. I also, you know, as an academic, I can be honest, I don't think it mattered at all. I don't think that was really what drove this process. So I think it, people should be honest about that, but I don't think it helped create Erdogan. You know, look, at the end of the day, the West was... There have always been people in the West who have been optimistic about Turkey, who've put a lot of weight onto Turkey's role, you know, yes, as a Muslim democracy, as a Middle Eastern state that was a NATO ally, as that was a Muslim country that was pro-American after 9-11. And as a result, I think this enthusiasm, this desire to have Turkey be not just an American ally, but a symbol of what, you know, we want the global South or the Muslim world to be has meant that there's always been a willingness, I think in both Washington and the Western media, to extend a lot of credit to anyone in Turkey who's willing to play into that narrative. You know, and Erdogan's good, and he played that very effectively for the better part of his time in office. And I don't, you know, yeah, I don't think that kind of the degree of generosity with which that, you know, that I won't say gullibility, that's not fair, but that, you know, the resonance that that had certainly wasn't, we can criticize that, but I don't think that's what made or break, made or broke Erdogan is, you know, he was a good politician. Turkish people supported him to the extent he gained power in an authoritarian manner. It's because the institutions that he needed to repress his enemies were willing to play along with him. It was his, it was his success. And maybe, so I don't, just on the most recent election, I, you know, I do agree you wrote a very good piece, a friend Stephen Cook and Sinan Jiddi wrote a very good piece, you know, pointing out how a lot of the optimism for the opposition was, was heavy-handed, was misguided. You know, but it's funny, for the last year, I've also been hearing people, particularly in Turkey, complain that everyone in the West was too pessimistic, that the conventional wisdom in Washington had written off Turkey, was assuming that Erdogan was going to win by hook or by crook. Uh, and so I don't... You know, in a way, I think there were a lot of analysts with a lot of different positions, and people got very optimistic towards the end as the poll numbers started to show Kılıçdaroğlu up 
by a greater margin than even the pretty significant margin of error a lot of people had for Turkish polls. You know, but before that, there were analysts on both sides of the issue. I don't think the ones that were thought Erdogan was going to win were being orientalist and condescending, but I also don't think the ones who thought Kılıçdaroğlu was going to win were necessarily being naive. Right. That, no, that's that's fair. And, and I, you know, I recognize the irony of asking this of a Turkey specialist, but why do you think people care that much? <laughs> about Turkey. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, you're not, you don't see a ton of, you know, articles and, and essays sort of, you know, exposing the anti-democratic measures of Tunisia's, you know, or at least not to the same extent as you see it in Turkey. Why, why is everyone so invested in the outcome? No, and it's always something, you know, I'm thrilled that editors, you know, I've been writing about Turkey for 15 years. I'm always thrilled that editors are excited to publish things about Turkey. You know, I think Turkey is the most important country in the world for any number of reasons that I'll gladly tell you about. But then, yeah, when you step back, it is a little surprising, the degree of enthusiasm. You know, okay, I mean, it does have this unique role as a Middle Eastern NATO ally or as a Muslim NATO ally. It's also a country that over the last 15 years, a lot of probably upper middle class Americans have visited as a tourist, which always makes it a little better for headlines. But at the end of the day, there is, you know, there is a little bit of a mystery, you know, and the, the geopolitical position it has is important. It borders on pretty much every crisis that American foreign policymakers were worried about over the last several decades. You know, but yeah, it is still, it's something in spite of all that, it's something of a mystery. And I do think a lot of it has to do with the way that at every stage, it's been invested with this broader political meaning that transcends, you know, transcends some of the specifics. The first, you know, in the 2000s, so much of that was about in the post 9-11 era being a politically pro-Western, secular Muslim country on the verge of becoming European. You know, now Erdogan, because of his pioneering role in populist right-wing Electoral authoritarianism has become, you know, there were a lot of hopes, you know, as the world, the United States, the rest of the world wrestles with this kind of right wing populist authoritarian leader, a lot of hopes invested in the Turkish opposition that shaped that shaped coverage of this issue. So yeah, I know that's the best answer I can give. I mean, is, you know, Turkey stays in the news. And as long as it's in the news, people continue to find to see what it symbolizes and want to want to understand what that means for the world. Yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, you know I've tried to wrestle with this question because you know as an as an Arab personally you know I've, I've seen the ebb and flow of you know the way Turkey was was perceived for for so long, especially under Erdogan's leadership. You know I remember back in you know the uh, the late two thousands his big outburst against Shimon Peres at the uh, Davos right. conference. You know his the Mavi Marmara incident, uh, trying to break the the siege of Gaza. Uh, you know, uh, I remember a moment in 2006 when our public opinion polls asked people who the most popular leaders in in the region are, and you know at the top of the list was Erdogan, Hassan Nasrallah of Hezbollah. You know, who was fighting the war against Israel, and Bashar al-Assad, right, who was standing up for Hezbollah against Israel. And and you know, and it's obviously a 180 degree turn now because Erdogan himself even. Um, even though he's quite popular, so with a lot of conservatives in the region, you know the the governments in the Gulf and Egypt and and elsewhere, you know have have uh, used his support for the Muslim Brotherhood as a as a scarecrow, you know for the populations at large, and 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 it's hmm. sowed a lot of distrust against him. 
you know, that, that's, that's a, a good pivot to my last question for you. There's a satirical Arabic news site in, in the Middle East that, that I used to write for. And, you know, their, their descriptor of Erdogan is the secular caliph. <laughs> You know, that's how they refer to him every time they read a news, a satirical news story about him. You know, secular caliph. And and I I wonder if you could, you know, just you, you talked about how his legacy will kind of overshadow a lot of Turkey's democratic aspirations long after he exits the political stage. And and I wonder if you could just, you know, talk a little bit about the the projections that people have, right? Because people across the region who feel like Islam is is in a difficult position or Islam is in a weak state. You know, harken back to the image of of the Ottoman Caliphate um, and its and its Islamic heritage. You know, and uh, and people across people across the region with democratic aspirations, even if, they, even if they disagree with the Muslim Brotherhood ideology, you know, they 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 find some value in the existence of of a democratic state. You know, in, in Turkey, at least prior to the Gezi protests and, and the crackdowns after that. And and I I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about whether this image of Erdogan as a sultan. Right as a caliph, it's it's almost a cliche in in the coverage of him. Right, you know, uh, do, does he espouse these qualities? I mean, is he when when we look back at him, is he going to be this transformative figure in the region, or is he just going to be another one of those autocrats who successfully used the tools available to him and and the mythology available to hmm. him uh, to to win power and to stay at the top for for quite some time. All right. Let me. Those are both very good questions. Let me take this. Take these in turn. First, on the democracy, and getting back to what you said about Egypt too. I mean, you know, I think there's always been this frustration on Erdogan's part. It's like, why does the West keep harping on democracy in Turkey? I mean, a he thinks he is democratic, but also, you know, as he correctly points out, there are plenty of undemocratic countries in the region, like Egypt, that you know the United States has no trouble dealing with their leaders. And I think that does get to something, you know, and it also explains part of the interest in Turkey in the United States that there were real hopes, you know, going back to 1950, you know, that's what I write about in my dissertation. There have always been such deep hopes for Turkey to democratize, such deep hopes for what that would mean about the universality of democracy, you know, in such a real long history to Turkey's, you know, albeit imperfect, but very real democracy that it's always, you know, in the Western press, it's going to be judged in a different way. And Erdogan, you know, when he channeled those democratic aspirations was going to be widely praised, but to the extent he's seen as an autocrat, is seen as thwarting them, he's going to get condemned for that in a way that, you know, MBS or CC is never going to be, is never going to be condemned. That gets the question of what, you know, where his... The secular caliph is a great line. I think that actually says a lot about what I was trying to get at in this piece, which is, you know, so much of his his use of the Ottoman Empire was, you know, it's wrapped up in a mix of religion and nationalism and something that you could even call religious nationalism. You know, when Erdogan came to power initially, the fear was, you know, is he going to bring Sharia to Turkey? It was very much, it was harping on the religiosity and the fears associated with that. Is he going to make everyone wear a headscarf? And, you know, and people continue to have very real fears about that. And the issue of women's rights in Turkey is going nowhere good. And the anger that has created is entirely justified. So I don't want to downplay any of that. But in terms of winning votes, what also has won Erdogan votes is his use of religious nationalism, his use of the Ottoman Empire as a symbol of when when Turkey and when the Islamic world were powerful, were powerful in a military, in a political, in an economic sense, 
vis-a-vis the West. And that's his ability to channel that image, that nostalgia, the sense of pride, the desire for justice that goes with that is, I think, part of what's made his appeal, you know, so widespread. And it's he's created an image of redressing the wrongs in the global order that can appeal to left-wing and secular Turks and can appeal to, you know, Islamists in the Arab world who don't necessarily particularly like the Turkish nationalist aspect of it. And that's, you know, and this gets back to giving him credit for the symbolic games that he plays. That's what makes him good. It's, you know, simultaneously being able to use religious, political, and historical symbols to channel uh, you know, to get Maduro at his inauguration, seeming to open his hands in prayer. I mean, this is, you know, it's left-wing third worldism, it's Islamism, it's Turkish nationalism, and he's become he's become the avatar of all of these. Bill Danford, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. 